Who has Jesus come for? Who has Jesus come for? Uh, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means the Lord saves, and he will save his people from their sins. But the question is, who are his people? Who is it that Jesus has come to save? Now, from our vantage point, the answer seems rather obvious, doesn't it? Jesus came for all people. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John tells us in John 1, 29. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in Him. Jesus is Savior, Lord, and King, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. Amen? But when Jesus first showed up, it wasn't quite so obvious to everyone just who Jesus had come for. After all, Jesus is Messiah. He's the anointed one of Israel. He's a, a Jewish savior for a Jewish people. And of course, Jesus did come for Israel, didn't he? Matthew, our author, has made it really clear that, he, that he's, uh, Jesus' story is anchored uh, to the history of Israel. That's what the genealogy was all about in the first part of chapter 1. Matthew ties Jesus' story to Abraham, the great father of Israel. He ties his story to David, the great king of Israel. He ties his story to the exile, the great suffering of Israel. So Jesus is indeed the hope of Israel, but he's more than that. He is the hope of all the world. And it's, an, it's very interesting, Matthew has already hinted at the fact that Jesus has come not just for Israel, but for the entire world. Uh, remember in the genealogy there were four women that, uh, that uh, Matthew highlighted, included in the genealogy. They're, they're listed not only because they, like Mary, have a little bit of scandal on their lives, they're listed because they, all of them, have Gentile entanglements. They, they are connected with non-Jewish people. For example, Tamar is a Canaanite. Rahab is also a Canaanite. Ruth is from Moab. She's a Moabitess. Uh, Bathsheba, we don't know her ethnicity for sure, her nationality, but we know she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. These are all non-Jewish people. And Matthew has gone out of his way to show us that not only can God work through scandals and redeem them for his glory, but also God is a God who has been incorporating the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people into his redemptive plan all the way along, throughout all of this time. So that Jesus is not just Savior of the Jews, He is Savior of the world. And just so we don't miss the point uh, that Jesus has come for all peoples, Matthew in chapter 2 here narrates the story of the Magi, the wise men, astrologers most likely from Babylon who have come 550 miles to welcome King Jesus, the Savior of the world. 
So grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. You'll find today's reading on page 807 and 808 in the Pew Bible there, uh, if you want to pull that out. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And to navigate our time together this morning, uh, I have three, three uh, points here. We're, we're going to look at the Magi, the quest, and the offerings, okay? The Magi, the quest, and the offering. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray and ask the Lord to be our teacher this morning. Father, as we turn to your word, would you remind us who Jesus came for? That he came for all people everywhere to be savior of the world. And that includes us. Help us to respond to who he is today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first of all, the Magi, the Magi. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Pause for a moment. Now, it's, it's hard for us to appreciate just how shocking it would have been for these wise men to show up in Jerusalem. If you look at your nativity set, uh, you, they look like just an entourage of some rich foreign dignitaries that have just come by, right? Uh, but these are magi, magi. Uh, that's the word that's translated wise men here. Uh, magi, you can hear the word magician in that word, magi, magician, that's what they were. They were enchanters, um, sorcerers. Uh, they, they were royal viziers to the pagan kings in the ancient world, especially associated with Babylon, which is in the east, which is where they're from, which is probably, that's probably what, they're probably Babylonians, okay? And the magis were diviners of the will of the gods or of fates. Uh, they were soothsayers, fortune tellers, mystics, seers. Uh, they were sinister folks. Uh, they would take fragments of animal bones that they killed and sacrificed, and they would throw their bones on the table, and they would look for the will of the gods in the pieces, or they would rip open an animal and gaze upon its entrails and look for portents of the future. Th these are weird guys, okay? They were astrologers. Uh, they looked to the skies. They believed the, the, the skies contained the secrets of earth. They were mysterious, dark, pagan people. They're out there. These are, this is some wild stuff, okay? It's wild stuff. And they're from Babylon, so they've come 550 miles. That would have taken them two months to get to Jerusalem. And at long last, here their caravan, caravan rolls into Jerusalem. And you can just imagine the stir this would have caused all throughout the city. A huge entourage of Babylonian magi come into town. You say, wait a minute, I thought there were only three of them. Well, that's the traditional number, three. But where does it say that in the text? Do you notice this? It doesn't say three. We have three gifts. That's where we get the three wise men. We have three gifts. But it's probable we had much more than that in terms of these magi. You don't take a 550-mile journey with just three people. Okay? 
they would have had servants and herdsmen. Uh, they would have had food supplies and cooks. They would have had tents and they would have packed it on pack animals. There are probably dozens of people in this entourage that turn up in Jerusalem. And they have a question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they're searching for a newborn king. And they've come to Jerusalem, which is the logical place to go, the capital of Israel. It's where the palace is, and it's where you would expect to find a baby newborn king, an heir to the throne. Um, You go to the palace, right? So here they are. Why did they come? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these Babylonian astrologers in their country saw something in the sky. Um, Now the word here for star just simply means celestial object. So it's very generic. It could be, uh, there's lots of theories. They could have seen a supernova. They could have seen a comet or a planetary conjunction, you know, where two planets line up and it gets super bright. Um, They could have seen planetary movements within significant constellations that they interpreted as meaningful. Uh, We don't know what it is that they saw in particular, but whatever it was, when it arose in the night sky, they worked out, this is amazing, they worked out from whatever it was in the star, in the sky, they worked out that it meant a newborn king of the Jews had been born, and of course, they're exactly right. Now, here's my question, how on earth did they figure that out? How did they figure that out? Seriously, that's an amazingly precise conclusion to draw from something so cosmically generic as an astrological sign in the night sky. How did they connect the dots from from whatever they saw to the specifics of a newborn baby in Jerusalem or in, in Israel? Well, the Bible doesn't spell it out for us directly. But I think there are some clues that we can piece together into something of a working theory, okay? So welcome to class. Here we go. Do you know who it was that uh, gave us the prophecy of the star? Do you know where this is in the Bible? It's at the end of the book of Numbers, and it's on the lips of a guy named Balaam, like Balaam and the donkey, if you know that story, Balaam. Balaam was an ancient pagan seer, a diviner. Uh, Tradition holds that he was among the very first of the Magi. It's interesting. As the Israelites were entering into the Promised Land, the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, which sounds like it's straight out of the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Balak. Anyway, Balak paid Balaam to curse the Israelites. And he tried three times to do this, and every time when he opened his mouth, it came out blessing instead of a curse. And then he gives this prophecy. This is Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. There's the prophecy, thousands of years old. This ancient prophecy is therefore recorded not only in Israel's history, 
Okay, it's recorded in the Bible in Israel's history. It is also recorded in the Moabite tradition because Balaam and Balak are Moabites, okay? And if tradition is correct that Balaam is one of the very earliest magi, then it is likely that this prophecy has been handed down generation after generation within the magi community, okay? You with me so far? Now, that's not all. During the exile, when the people of Israel were sent uh, to Babylon, Uh, Do you remember how Daniel rose to power? He became an advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar because he could interpret dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel in charge of a whole swath of the government, including the Magi. The Magi of Babylon reported in to Daniel, our Daniel, from the Old Testament. And from Daniel, no doubt, they would have had access to some of the Hebrew Scriptures, some of the prophecies of Messiah from the Hebrew Scriptures. And not only that, but Daniel himself received a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. We call it the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which gave the timeline for the coming of Messiah. And you work out all the math, and Messiah will come 483 years after the Persians allowed the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. So here's my working theory. The Magi knew of Balaam's oracle from their own tradition. During the exile, they learned of the prophecies of the Jewish Messiah from Daniel. And then Daniel gave them the precise timeline to watch for the coming of Messiah. And so I think for all of these years, they've been waiting, passed on generation to generation, waiting for the the exact right year to, to come, waiting for the star to appear in the sky to signify the coming of the Messiah, the King of Israel. And I think this is amazing that God, look, God loved these magi so much and wanted them to know his son that he, God spent thousands of years orchestrating this moment. He gives a prophecy to Balaam in the, in the ancient world. He puts Daniel in position to be their boss so they hear of the Hebrew prophecies. He hangs a, a star in the night sky. He's speaking their language, you see. So they will be sure to see and understand what's going on so that they will be among the very first to come and see the beloved Son of God who is bringing salvation, not just to Israel, but to the nations. Is that not amazing? Friends, God makes himself knowable. You see this? God makes himself knowable. Just as God spoke to the Magi in a language they'd be sure to understand, God does that for you and me to this very day. God is speaking. You know this, right? He's speaking in creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Day by day they pour out speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. That all of us, regardless of our education level or our background, or, or that we, we all have some sense that God is speaking to us in creation. But not just in creation, God reveals himself in his word, in his word. And you realize that God, when God gave us his holy word, he didn't reveal it in a perfectly hev- perfect heavenly language. 
you know, that only angels can speak and God speaks, and we'd have to go to a class and study and learn it and master a language system in order to understand God. No, 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 no. He uses our words, our language. Do you re- That's amazing. You can, we, we heard Scripture read in all these different languages this morning. Do you realize God's Word is translatable? It comes close. There's not an original language that just makes it obscure and out of touch. It's for everyone. He uses everyday language and syntax and grammar and everyday words and categories. He comes down to our level. He accommodates to our categories. It's like when you talk with your kids and you use different words so they'll be sure to understand you. What we have in Scripture is, in a sense, divine baby talk to our level. And God has revealed himself in Jesus, in creation, in his word, in in Jesus Christ. Friends, God could not have spoken more clearly in our own language than when he sent Jesus to be the incarnate one, to take on our flesh, our humanity, our frailty, our limitations, to become one of us. In communications classes, I was taught, you got to try to put yourself in your audience's shoes, right? That's what good communication requires. Do you realize Jesus literally put himself in our shoes? He literally walked where we walk. God has made himself knowable, friends. He's speaking to you in words you can understand. He speaks in creation, he speaks in his word, he speaks in Jesus Christ. Are you listening? Are you listening? The Magi, now let's talk about the quest, the quest. These Magi are on a quest to find the newborn king, right? They've come to worship him. And as they're asking around Jerusalem, where is this king? Eventually, the word reaches King Herod himself, who is not really a legitimate king. He's a puppet king for Rome, and he doesn't take kindly to their question. (laughs) There's another king? Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. What the Magi heard as tidings of joy, Herod received as a threat to his dominion. And Herod was troubled. And when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled because Herod had a reputation. He had killed all kinds of people, including family members, to protect his royal throne. And Herod wants to get to the bottom of this, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. By the way, that prophecy from Micah 5.2 was made 700 years before before these events. It's amazing. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, we know from the rest of the story that Herod's intentions are less than honorable. 
Uh, he has no intentions to come and worship the king. He wants the magi to be scouts and spies for him so that he can come and eliminate the child before he can grow up and become a threat. It's such a contrast, isn't it, between the Magi and Herod, their hearts. Here the Magi come and they bow down and they worship and they pay homage to Jesus. And Herod is threatened by the authority of this newborn king. He thinks, I've got to destroy him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Don't you love those words, your GPS, when it talks to you? You have reached your final destination, right? The star guided them to the place where the child was. This is, this is the first global positioning system, okay? And they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Here's the point. God makes himself findable. You see that? God makes himself findable. Not only does God make himself knowable, he makes himself findable. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Friends, God is a person, and persons want to be sought out, don't we? We want to be pursued. We want to be wanted. We want to be known. And God wants to be pursued too. He wants to be sought. That's why he doesn't come with a big loud marketing plan all up in your face, you know. He's not after big fanfare. No, he shows up as a baby, quiet, tucked away with a little breadcrumb trail of clues so that anybody who wants to can find him if they want. It's like what Paul says in Acts 17, 27, that God has revealed himself to the nations that they might seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's actually not that far from each one of us. Friends, God's fingerprints are all over creation. His heart is revealed in his word. His son has come and dwelt among us. There are breadcrumb trails to the manger, don't you see? He's, God is hidden in plain sight. He wants to be found. It's like your kids when they hide in the most obvious of places. They want to be found. And so does God. Are you seeking? Are you seeking? The magi, the quest, finally the offering. The offering, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I love this. They fell down and worshiped him. Not only did they kneel before him as king, they worshiped him as the divine son of God. And then they unpacked their royal gifts. Gold, 
Just like now, gold was a symbol in those days of ultimate value. It's a kingly royal gift. For this blue-collar family, it was a fortune. We know how poor Mary and Joseph were because when they go and present Jesus at the temple in Luke, they offer a sacrifice of two turtle doves, which was the sacrifice that was for the poorest of the poor, the poverty line families. They, they had nothing. This is a fortune they've been given. Frankincense. Frankincense is an exotic spice. It's from Southern Arabia and Somalia. They used it in expensive perfume and incense. It was burned in, in the temple for worship by the priests and used on special occasions. So you can see them here. We've got gold. We've got frankincense. But wait, there's myrrh. You know, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> All right. So then myrrh, right? A luxury cosmetic fragrance. It was used in perfumes. It was also used in burial customs. I, I don't think we should press this too far, but there's a hint here that many scholars have seen of Jesus' role and identity in these gifts, that he comes to be the king, gold. He comes to be the priest, frankincense in the temple. He comes to be the sacrifice who lays down his life. Myrrh, an embalming um, aloe. There might be something to that. But the point is, these are high-end luxury items that are fit for a king. These are gifts that are, are well beyond Mary and Joseph's social standing. They could never have afforded these things. And it's reminiscent, if you know your Old Testaments, of the Queen of Sheba who came to Solomon and uh, she brought what? Gold and great quantities of spices and gave them to the king. Or Isaiah, who 700 years before writes, this is Isaiah chapter 60, arise, shine for your light is come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you and nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And this is a, a prophecy ultimately about the, the coming kingdom when Jesus returns the second time. But it's partially fulfilled here with the Magi, you see. All these years later, the Magi come on their camels following the light that has arisen, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, offering praise and worship to the Lord. You know, and I wonder, I wonder about these gifts. I, I wonder if maybe, this is just a theory. This is a little out there, okay, admittedly. I wonder if they're on Daniel's orders, actually. I, you know, Daniel knew exactly when Messiah would come, 483 years after the Persians allowed Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And the Magi were under his command. He was the boss of them. And I wonder if maybe he gave them a standing order to watch for the star and make pilgrimage to welcome his king when, when he came. I, I wonder if these gifts aren't actually from Daniel, you know? Like he set aside a little purse of money to I don't know. It's totally speculation, but it's kind of fun to think about, right? 
What's less speculative is that these gifts were probably the way that Mary and Joseph paid for the journey to Egypt. You'll notice in the second half of the chapter here, Herod comes to kill baby Jesus and they have to escape in the middle of the night. It's an expensive trip all the way down to Egypt. They could not have afforded it on their own. My guess is Mary and Joseph sold these things to pay for their trip and their sustenance in Egypt. I, I, I think God was pro- providing for the protection of his son from the murderous threats of Herod with these gifts from the Magi, just in the right moment, you see? So Mary and Joseph received these gifts on behalf of Jesus, and the Magi received Jesus with their worship. It's the first giving and exchanging of gifts, you see. God makes himself receivable. God makes himself receivable. Knowable, findable, and receivable. John 1 verses 9 to 12 says this, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, you you realize God doesn't force himself on anybody. He doesn't crash your party. He's a gentleman like that. He stands at the door and knocks. And he waits for you to decide what to do. To open the door and receive him. Do you, do you realize how vulnerable that makes God? I mean, he could stand, you might never open the door and he just stands there like a fool. Why would God come like this? Why does he come rejectable? Why does he come deniable? Why does he come betrayable, vulnerable, woundable, pierceable, killable? Why does God show up like this? Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish philosopher. Um, I, don't, I don't like everything Kierkegaard did, but this is brilliant. He wrote a little parable called The King and the Maiden. I just want to read this to you. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one would dare resist him. But would she love him? Mm. She would say that she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know for sure? If he rode into her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. 
He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and let shared love cross the gulf between them. The king, convinced that he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. This was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He renounced his throne to win her hand. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that she could be his forever. It was the only way. His raggedness became the very signature of his presence. Friends, God has made himself receivable. Are you welcoming? Are you welcoming? Who has Jesus come for? For shepherds and wise men, for Jews and Gentiles, for the pious and the pagan, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, in Jesus Christ, God has made himself knowable. Are you listening? In Jesus Christ, God has made himself findable. Are you seeking? In Jesus Christ, God has made himself receivable. Are you welcoming? Who has Jesus come for? He's come for you. He's here for you. He's ragged for you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, this is amazing love that would cross the chasm of space and time, of heaven and earth, of holiness to the brokenness of this world, to be near to us, to rescue us, to save us. Christ has come to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserved, and to rise again so that we might become children of God forever. Amazing, amazing this story is. And so Father, help us listen, help us seek, help us receive this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.